Let's read from Colossians 1, verses 1 to 14, which says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks, Kevin. Good morning to everyone. Lovely to uh, come over here, enjoy our annual pulpit swap. It's a good opportunity to uh, get out and about, and uh, it's a good opportunity for uh, Ashford to hear from someone else as well. So, uh, so have your Bibles open at the passage that uh, Kevin just read, Colossians chapter 1, page uh, 1182. Now, one of the uh, biding memories of my early life was how quickly after Christmas my mum got on my case about writing thank you letters. Anyone else? It was almost, you know, I barely had time to play with the toys or whatever it was, and she was saying, well, you must write to so-and-so, auntie or uncle, and thank them so much for what they've given you. But I always felt it, was a, it, it wasn't all that authentic, You know, surely it's only after a while that you appreciate a present or a gift, and then the thanks is a little bit more forthcoming, isn't it? A few years ago, um, we got bought one of these. I wonder whether you know what it is. Does anyone know what that is? Any guesses? Sorry? An aerial. (laughs) Oh, yeah, getting the signal. No, it's not an aerial. Uh, It is for the microwave, absolutely. I'll put you out of your misery. It's actually, you cook bacon on it in the microwave. So you you put the bacon rashers over the the prongs, cover it with a bit of uh, kitchen paper, and it cooks bacon healthfully, okay? Because all the fat sort of drips off into the tray at the bottoms. Very nice indeed. 
Well, when we got bought this sort of bacon thingy, my wife opened it and we looked at each other a bit sort of nonplussed because we really didn't know what it was, just like you this morning. She wrote off a thank you letter to our friends uh, in the States, um, but then we began to use it. And then we began to marvel at it and thought, what a wonderful, wonderful present. And here we are probably 17 or 18 years later. We still use it. And when Eric and Nicole visited from Chicago, I got it out of the cupboard and said, look, we still use your bacon thingy. It's fantastic, isn't it? Now, we were genuinely thankful for it once we began to use it and appreciate the benefits of it. So genuine thanksgiving often is directly related to how much we appreciate a gift. And what is true of Christmas presents is even more the case when it comes to the gift of God's Son, the Lord Jesus, to us. I love the film that the, uh, was shown earlier, summarizing Christ's life and ministry. Now in this little series in January, we're looking at the benefits of the gospel. Nick kicked off the series, didn't he, a couple of weeks ago with the benefits of the gospel in the present, now. Last week, uh, Andy Savile talked with you about the benefits of the gospel in the future, and I'm sort of finishing the series by looking at the benefits of the gospel in the past. And to do that, we're looking at um, this passage in Colossians, but we're really only going to focus on three verses at the end, verses 12 to 14. Now, after his initial introduction, which is fairly standard, verses 1 and 2, Paul then thanks God for what's happened in the Colossians' life. The fact that they've received the gospel, they've believed, they're demonstrating all the marks of genuine Christians. Um, Then he prays for them from verses 9 to 14. He asks God to fill them uh, with the knowledge of his will. So they'd be able to discern how to live in a manner that pleases God. And there are four aspects of such a life. Firstly, that they bear fruit in good works. Secondly, they grow in their relationship with God, which I think was the heart of Nick's message. Thirdly, they'd be strengthened with God's power to endure. And lastly, that they would joyfully give thanks. And then at the end, if you like, the the basis of thanksgiving he gives them. Let me read again verses 12 to 14. And joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light or the inheritance of the holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us or another translation is transferred us. I think it's a bit more powerful. He's transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So to be appreciative of what God has done for us, we, we, we're going to focus on the three things he mentions here. They're all in the past tense. Firstly, he's qualified us for heaven. Secondly, he's rescued us from darkness. And lastly, he's transferred us into Christ's kingdom. Qualified, rescued, transferred. Let's look at each one in turn. Firstly, he's qualified us for heaven, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Now, often when we think about qualifying for something, it's usually on the basis of what we have done, isn't it? 
So our young people, when they sort of qualify for university, it's because they've got the grades that uh, are demanded from that uh, establishment. If you want to qualify for the local golf club, then it's usually because you've passed the interview and you know one end of a club from another. If you qualify for an airline platinum card, or whatever they want to call it, it's because you've flown enough miles, or you've been loyal enough to them, that they then reward you with that card. It's all on the basis of what we do, isn't it? But when it comes to heaven, we don't qualify for heaven on the basis of what we do, but rather God qualifies us when we put our faith in what Christ has done for us. Now, it may be what you believe, but it's not. That is not actually how most people believe. See, if we were to go over to Two Rivers uh, Shopping Centre uh, with a clipboard and a question, and we were to ask passers-by, why should God let you into heaven? The answers we'd get would be things like, well, I've never murdered anyone. I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments. I've taken my first communion. I, I was baptised or christened. Um, I try to be a good person. Those are the sort of answers we would get. Now, I know that because I've tried the exercise many places and many uh, different times, and those are the sort of answers people give. See, most people think that we qualify for heaven on the basis of how we live our lives. But the good news, in fact, the great news of the gospel, is we qualify for heaven entirely upon what Christ has done for us. Now, the Colossians needed to be reminded of this because there were, as uh, Kevin intimated, there were some false teachers going around in Colossae. And it wasn't so much that they were denying what Jesus had done, but their teaching was, well, okay, you believe what Jesus has done, but you need something more than Jesus. You need something more than Jesus to fully experience God. That's why in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul writes, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the price. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. You see, anyone that, who suggests that we need something more than what Christ has done for us to bring us into God's presence and enjoy uh, the presence of God is going beyond the gospel and indeed is falling into the same trap as was happening in Colossae. So if it happened back then, it can happen today. But why does Paul describe heaven here as an inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light? Well, an inheritance, we probably all know, don't we? An inheritance is something that awaits us in the future. It's something that we hope for. Chapter 1, verse 5, the faith and the love of the Colossians that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. So that sort of future hope in heaven is what inspires them and, and, and really is the sort of uh, the springboard for their faith and their uh, love today. Now, an earthly inheritance is not something that is always as secure as it seems, isn't it? Is it? Some of you may have experienced this. Uh, it might be that you were sort of in someone's will, a relative's will, and then suddenly, sort of towards the end of their life, they decided to change their will, and you were no longer in it. That's pretty bad news, isn't it? 
Or maybe that person, in the, the sort of, towards the end of their life, they decided, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy myself. And they go on a massive spending, spending binge, and they blow the lot. And when it comes to the solicitor opening the world, say, well, I'm afraid the cupboard's bare. They spent it all. Again, that's not great news, is it? If you were stood to gain something. Or maybe, as uh, many people are experiencing these days, certainly in this country, you know, you can have quite a big inheritance on paper, but care costs just erode it, don't they, pretty quickly. But our inheritance in heaven that awaits the Christians, described here as God's holy people, that is in the future, is absolutely rock solid. Because God has already qualified us to receive it. It's so certain that at the beginning of chapter 3 in Colossians, Paul tells the believers to do this. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. But sadly, that's the very opposite to how most of us think and live. You see, we set our hearts and our minds on earthly things, things that we can sort of see, feel, touch and experience. And as for heavenly things, well, that tends to be a case of sort of fingers crossed, touch wood. I hope it's there. But actually, Paul's saying here, it's no, you're really to live the very opposite way around. The heavenly things are absolutely secure. And you can be sure of that. The earthly stuff, you know what? It's temporal. It's temporal. One day, you're going to have to wave goodbye to every single bit of it. Most of us probably need a little bit of a a recalibration of our minds and our hearts to get in line with what God says here. So our thanksgiving to God is firstly anchored, we're thinking about benefits of the gospel in the past, it's firstly anchored in the fact that he has qualified us for heaven, based not on our performance, but based 100% upon what Jesus has done for us if we put our faith and trust in him. Secondly, he's rescued us from darkness. Again, it's the past tense. We look forward to the inheritance that is ours in the kingdom of light because God has decisively acted for us, verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Now, throughout the pages of Scripture, most of you probably know this, light is often a metaphor for truth, for goodness, for good, and for life. And darkness, not surprisingly, the very opposite. It's uh, a metaphor for ignorance and chaos, for evil and death. John writes in his prologue, doesn't he, of the Lord Jesus, the word that became flesh, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it or understood it. So in the Bible, light and darkness are always opposites. They always clash. Now, in most walks of life, um, maybe not overly PC saying it, but in most walks of life, a person's background uh, will have an impact upon their opportunities in life. Generally, the wealthier and better educated a person is, the greater the breadth of opportunities that person is likely 
to experience. Now, whether they take advantage of them, well, that is a totally different matter, isn't it? Many often don't. To be born in certain countries at a certain point of time will afford you either great blessings and opportunities or great discomfort. So anyone born in Venezuela in the last five or ten years, you know, what a terrible situation. But equally, many born in China with the economic boom, what a great opportunity. And we need to recognize that to be born or to be raised in this country affords us enormous privileges that the vast majority of the world's population simply don't enjoy. But what is true in most walks of life is not true spiritually. Spiritually, it is a completely level playing field in that every one of us starts in the same place. I don't mean by saying that we're all born in Truro like I was, but rather we're all born into darkness. Whether we were born into a Christian family or a family where the things of God were ignored completely, whether we were born in a country that is ostensibly Christian, like the UK or the United States, or a country where Christianity is uh, ostracized, like Iran or North Korea. Every one of us are born into darkness because by nature we're, we're all hostile to God. The Apostle Paul had been a Pharisee in the Jewish religion and would have been revered for his law-keeping and his morality, but he recognizes, doesn't he, he was in darkness. Now, this all goes back, that marvelous film we saw, it all goes back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. They chose to uh, reject what God had said to do and then... In the light of their disobedience, what happened when God suddenly began to walk in the garden? What did Adam and Eve do immediately? They hid. They hid because they were in darkness. And when light apparents, always clashes, so they hid. See, the dominion of darkness is the natural habitat for every single one of us. It's... That's the dominion, if you like, we're born into. And it's always opposed to the light. This is what uh, Jesus says in John, th John chapter 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You see, by nature, we want to stay in the darkness. We're opposed to God and his rule, and by nature, we want to rule ourselves. The thing is, we cannot get ourselves out of the dominion of darkness. Not by being better people, not by just trying that bit harder. We cannot escape. We cannot get ourselves out of it. We need someone to do it for us. So he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And what's the third thing God has done for us in Christ? He has rescued us. He's brought us or transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So he's qualified us for heaven, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, which we're incapable of getting out of ourselves, and he has brought us or transferred us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ.
Now, those who are footy fans will know that January is the transfer window, isn't it? It's the time when teams can sort of offload the players that aren't, that aren't getting a game, bring in hopefully some guys who might make a difference, get some silverware at the end of the season. But once a player's transferred, their allegiance goes, doesn't it? So if Christian Eriksen finally leaves Spurs and goes to Inter Milan, he's not going to carry around in his kit bag both shirts. He's not going to have a Tottenham shirt and an Inter Milan shirt and decide each Saturday, well, who am I going to play for? Which is it going to be? No, he's left one and he's been transferred to the other. And so it is here. We have left the dominion of darkness where we were in hostility to God and opposed to his rule and God through Christ has transferred us, if we've put our trust in him, transferred us to a new kingdom, a new dominion. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul then tells us what is true of those who have been transferred to that kingdom. What does he say in verse 14 at the end? He says, in whom, in Christ, that is, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So through faith in Christ, not only have we been forgiven sin's guilt, but we've also been released from sin's power. And all of this is because of the work of Christ for us. Jesus puts it like this in Mark's Gospel, for for even the Son of Man, describing himself, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, redemption has at its very root, uh, the the concept is one of release, isn't it? And of... uh, Uh, rescue, deliverance. So we were the ones in slavery, in the dominion of darkness, incapable of saving ourselves. And Christ is the one who by his death, his death is, if you like, the ransom price, the redemption price, to set us free. And through him, through faith in him, we've been transferred to this new kingdom, the kingdom of light. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christ, which we must believe to be saved. It's not simply information that we need to know and uh, lock away, but uh, he is the only means of rescue, the one in whom we are to put our trust. So he has qualified us for heaven. These are all in the past tense. He's qualified us for heaven. He's rescued us from darkness. He's transferred us to his kingdom. Now, many of us here today probably already believe that, which is great. But there may be some here today who don't believe that. Well, actually, the writer, to, uh, the writer of this letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul, for many years, he didn't believe it either. In fact, more than that, he didn't just not believe it. He fiercely and violently opposed anyone who did believe it. So much so that one day he had a letter in his pocket. He was on his way to Damascus in order to arrest and imprison Christians who believed, who'd put their faith in Christ. But then on that day, on that road, the Lord Jesus, the glorified Lord Jesus, appeared to Saul, as he was then called. He told him who he is, and then he gave him this job. He says this, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. 
I will rescue you from your own people, that is the Jews, and from the Gentiles. And here he is, here's his commission. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There's remarkable similarity, doesn't it, to what he's written here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. And what was Paul's commission remains the work of the church, the mission of the church, to call people out of darkness, into light, that they might experience the forgiveness of sins that is available in Christ Jesus. Now, Bill, in notices, he mentioned a passion for life, this mission that we're running as uh, some churches. Admittedly, lots of things are happening over Ashford Way, but that doesn't matter. Everyone is invited, particularly to bring friends along to them. There's a whole host of things happening uh, on the back, and I'll be there over coffee uh, to answer any questions, encourage you to get involved in that. Now, in 2016... Do you remember, what were the four words that helped Donald Trump get elected in America? What were the four words? Make America great again. That's what we remember, wasn't it, from his, his appeal. We may not like Donald Trump, that's a side issue, but make America great again. We remember it, the old red hat. Just before Christmas, Boris got elected with just three words. What were they? Get Brexit done. That's what we remember, isn't it? Whether we like Boris or not, whether we're a Remainer or Brexit, we remember it. Passion for life, two words. Two words, that's all you need to remember. Problem solved. Problem solved. See, the problem that faces every single person on this planet is... We're born into the dominion of darkness. It's a level playing field. Everyone is a sinner facing the wrath of God. But there is a solution, but there's only one solution, and that is Christ. He's the one who bore that wrath so we would not have to. And that's the message that the church needs to keep proclaiming. There's a whole load of other messages we could get stuck into, which will probably win us lots of favor in the world around us and the community, wider community. But this is what we're commissioned to do. Problem solved. Do you believe that? Well, get engaged, passion for life, and make sure that stays our mission as a church. Because as I say, lots of temptation to be drawn off in other directions. So we've seen benefits of the gospel in the past. He's qualified us for heaven. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Now, a few months ago, uh, my wife and I, we were out for dinner with our oldest, our daughter, Beth. And we had a lovely dinner. uh, And at the end, I said to them, look, excuse me a minute. Just going to go and settle up. So I went off up to the bar and said, can I pay for our meal, etc." And the barman said, 
It's done. I said, what? I was already, already paid. I said, who? What? When? I said, oh, a lovely young lady came up a few minutes ago and paid the bill for you. I thought, oh. So I went back to the table and I said, was that you, Beth, that did that? She said, oh, yeah, sorry, when I said I was going to the loo, I wasn't really going to the loo. I was going to pay the bill. Now, I protested a bit. I said, oh, come on, let's split it. You know, you, you, know, you can't afford it. And so I said, no, no, I want to do it. It's my gift to you. Just let me do it. So we did. Very thankful. When it comes to salvation, it's a done deal. God has done it for us. It's already done in Christ. Now, we may protest. We may say, well, come on, God, let, let me contribute a bit. Come on, I, you, know, I, you know, I'm trying to do my very best. Let me contribute. And God will say, no, it's done in Christ. The important thing is for us is we believe that and we keep believing it. So the benefits of the gospel in the past, we're all in the past tense. He has qualified us for heaven. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's transferred us into his kingdom. Three things that that should, for the Christian, impact us. Firstly, it should give us a confidence before God. Because whether we have a great day or an absolute stinker, our standing before God has not changed. The enemy will convince us that it has and we're not worthy to be called Christians, etc. But no, it, it gives us a confidence before God. Secondly, it should in us make us very thankful to God because we realize it's all about what Jesus has done for us. So our thanksgiving should be very uh, enthusiastic. And lastly, so confidence, thanksgiving, lastly, it should give us courage before people. It should give us courage before people, particularly non-Christian friends and family members. When I um, <clears throat> bang on to my church about this and invite, I've challenged them all, invite five people. A lot of people, kind of their underlying reservation is, yeah, but what if they say no? What if they say no? I said, well, saying no is not a failure. Even if they say yes and they don't show up, it's not a failure. A failure is to simply never bother inviting anyone in the first place. But what Christ has done for us gives us courage before people because nothing they can say or do, as we heard again at the end of that little film, nothing they can say or do can separate us from God's love for us, which is secure. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you that it was not a reward for our good behavior that you reached out and rescued us, but as an act of great love on your part. Thank you for the gospel of grace. Please help each one of us to appreciate the gift of your Son, not merely in our heads, but with our lives. Enable us to turn from the things we have lived for and sought security in and put our trust in the Lord Jesus. Help us to treasure what is lasting and eternal, 
rather than live for simply earthly things. All of this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.